Welcome to the Mark Copage Podcast Show. Join me each week as we welcome professionals from all areas of entertainment, in front of the scenes and behind, as they give advice and tell stories about their journey. We'll be right back with our first guest. Don't call me Cory Baker, call me Marco Posh. Cause I'm not Julia's son like I was before. Don't call me Cory Baker, call me Marco Posh. Cause I'm not Julia's son, not anymore. Our guest for today grew up in a creatively gifted household, which was their inspiration to pursue their career choice of working professionally in the entertainment industry. They have a background in fashion design, writing, editing, marketing, advertising, business and talent development and management, copywriting, as well as music publishing. They were the youngest writer to be hired to work for Women's Wear Daily and the youngest producer for West Coast Fashion Week four years in a row. Some of the artists they have worked closely with over the years are Supertramp, Carol King, Barbara Streisand, Whitney Houston, Aretha Franklin, Gladys Knight and the Pips, Michael Jackson, Earth, Wind and Fire, Smokey Robinson, Lionel Richie, Janet Jackson, Justin Timberlake, Mariah Carey, Jay-Z Usher, and Quincy Jones, just to name a small handful. They also served as a consultant for the State of California Youth Authority, Department of Children's Services, and Probation Department for their transitional programs, specifically youth interested in the arts. They have successfully transitioned over 100 young men back into society in business and entertainment intern programs. Along with their business partner, they currently run an entertainment consulting business, a financial consultant entity, and Imagine Me, an educational model that they are most proud of. And if this were not enough, they are also a gourmet chef. Aileen Randolph, welcome to the show. Aileen Randolph, I love you, Mark. No, anybody says Aileen only because um, that's how it's spelled, but actually AI is the vowel sound for Asian community. And that's my Chinese grandmother. What what did I get wrong there? I heard you about to interject. Aileen Randolph. Aileen Randolph. Okay, so that's the thing I got wrong. Okay. And correct me if I get anything else wrong, because uh, uh, you were kind enough to send me some things, but I also snooped around on the Internet and picked up different stuff, too. And the Internet is all not always accurate. So if I start on something that's not really accurate, let me know. Uh, let me get. Things have changed so much. Say that again. Things have changed so much since Think- that resolution. But thank you so much. Could have been, yeah. So you're more than free to update me wherever you wherever you can. You you grew up in L- L.A., correct? Yes, I was born in Dallas, Texas, and then my father took the whole family here to L.A. Um, when we were one one years old, and it was myself, my twin sister, and my younger brother, who was just born, and we came out to L.A. And my father um, was the director program director for KGFJ, um, and he just left the South. He recruited from the South. He was the first black disc jockey, a program programming entity ever in the South 
on a pop station. And because of that, Arnie Shore from KGFJ, a wonderful uh, young Jewish guy, um, he still wanted to keep that radio station um, really prominent in the urban and black community at that time in the 50s. So he recruited my dad, and my dad came out here, and my father was also more importantly, more than being in programming, um, he really loved um, community activism. So when he came out here, um, he got involved with everything from um, really merging a community of just great music. It had nothing to do with genres, just a, a, a true enthusiasm and love for great music. And of course, back in that day, that was it. Our first babysitter was Jackie Shannon, who did, you know, but the world needs loud, love, sweet love. And put a little love in your heart. That was my first babysitter. It's kind of funny. Uh, uh, one of the Staples Centers were my first, one of my first babysitters. <laughs> I can't remember which one, but I found a note that my father wrote because he wrote little notes. And he, you know, he talked about how one of them. But go ahead. And um, so that was how we first came out here. So I was raised in Los Angeles. However, I was born in Dallas, Texas. And you guys were kind of, because there was a lot of criticism, there was a show that I was on many, many, many years ago, and, you know, it was kind of touted as being, you know, one of the first shows to uh, uh, represent a uh, African-American female in a non-stereotypical role. But part of the criticism was, you know, the, 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 the woman not having a father in the family, although it was for, you know, no admirable reasons. I mean, the, 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 the father died in Vietnam serving his country, but you guys were kind of like the first Cosme kind of family. And maybe that's why part of the criticism was because you guys at this time that was before Julia were kind of like a Cosme. I mean, you were a kind of upper in middle class, if not more, I mean, you know, maybe more, but you, you, you were a, a prominent black family. And part of the criticism was not showing uh, a complete kind of family, you know, like the Cosby show, but you guys were kind of that. And we, we were called the black Brady Bunch. <laughs> we were, we were. Um, my father's side of the family is the crazy rich, crazy, crazy rich, um, because of the Cherokee Indian money in Irish. Um, we're 40% Irish, um, and the money they got was the merging of our families back in the day without getting into too much detail with the Cherokee Indian tribe. Uh, on my mother's side of the family, they're Puerto Rican, they're Haitian, and they're Black Creek and Sioux Indian and Chinese. So my grandfather on mother's side, she, uh, my grandfather's Puerto Rican Haitian. My grandmother was Chinese and black and two Indian. On my father's side of the family, they're, they're Cherokee and Irish. So it's a really bizarre mix of people in my family. Hmm. But because of that, we were raised a certain kind of way, but my father hated that. He was the first black ROTC. He was the first black president at Oklahoma University, uh, president of the debate club. He was the first black to do so many things, and it made him really uncomfortable. So he wanted to go to Morehouse for a while, and he met Martin Luther King Jr. And Martin Luther King Jr. was his big brother. Hmm. You know, yeah, the big brothers back in the day, you know, they kind of like, you know, usher you in. And so he helped Martin Luther King help indoctrinate my father into 
campus life. At that point, my father, he was supposed to go to, um, he was supposed to go to school to be a medical doctor. Instead, he wanted to be more involved with community activism. Um, so at that point, everything changed. Um, we, yes, we were raised knowing it was a crap load of money in our family. However, my father did not spoil us. He would not put us in private school. Um, he did not allow us, even my great aunt was the chairman of Lynx. And my, and my second cousin was the president of Jack and Jill. He would not let us join at all. He said, you are not better than anybody else. So I'm not going to separate you from anyone. I'll put you in the best public students. You will not go to private school. So yes, we, we knew we had money in our family. We were not raised that way. My father refused. <laughs> he, uh, he appreciated education. He appreciated hard work. And we loved music because that's what he brought around our house every day. Every day we had everybody in our house that was either an artist or involved some way in the recording industry or somehow in, you know, in an industry that really, how to put it, encouraged our community to be better at being ourselves. Because we are fabulous. And he wanted all of us to know that. And so we were always around people who were the best or at least aspiring to be the best of what they did. And by best, I don't mean just trying to, you know, outshine somebody else, but by best, I mean how they interacted with everyone else, how they made everything they did about not just themselves, but the people that were around. That was my father. Well, it seems like your father was very democratic. Uh, he, instead of putting you in the best private schools, he wanted the best private schools to be available to, to everyone, it's, it seems like. Um, he, about private schools. He, went to, he went to boarding schools all his life. Yeah. He, he refused, besides college, he refused to put us through that. He just said, I will not put you in a private school situation. Now, most of our friends were going there. But the, the most imaginative and creative people I met were from the schools I went to. You seem to recall, because we're within the same generation, and I, I don't remember a lot of those things that were going off in the 60s, but because of your father's activism, it seems like you would probably be able to recall more of the times that were taking place uh, in, in the late 60s. The uh, riot, uh, Sons of Watch. I still have artwork here now from that time period um, that they gave my father. Um, my father was there for um, so many things. He got Tom Bradley elected for mayor. Um, Yvonne Brathwaite Burke. I can go on because my father died at 39. Yeah, way too young. <laughs> he was way too young. Uh, but the day he died, he became the first black chairman of a cable network. He was a writer for Star Trek. Um, of course, a, a, a ghost writer because obviously he had some, he was an international um director of crazy broadcasting that was circle stations, but he did a lot of ghostwriting for uh, Mission Impossible, I Spy, Star Trek. Um, he was the international president of the chess club, popular mechanics, uh, 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 science club. My father was involved with everything. He spoke uh, fluent Yiddish and German. So that was my dad. Because he worked, he worked in, a, in a Jewish community. I mean, at that point, especially entertainment was Jewish, as you know. Uh, so my father really wanted them to feel comfortable around him, and they did. Hmm. 
Well, it, it seems like your father definitely echoes that Billy Joel song, Only the Good Die Young, because who knows what he might have been able to accomplish <laughs> if he had lived longer, because he definitely uh, it, it, it was interested in, 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 and supported uh I mean, you know, a lot of a lot of the Democratic Party doesn't really stand up for the working class. And it seems like your father was definitely a man of the people. Uh, he was really interested in everyone having a fair shake in this world. But doesn't have too many clothes. And sometimes you can be really laugh about it. It's like, Dad, get over yourself. But he grew up so rich that he even wouldn't let us have great furniture. We had the worst furniture of anybody and all our friends. We're like, Daddy, we don't have to live like this. My father was so cute. Uh-huh. He's like, no, we have just enough furniture, enough things just to, you know, to make sure we have what we need. He was almost embarrassed of how we grew up, which I don't want to, you know, obviously harp, you know, harp on. But what it did do for us is keep us balanced because I still love great things. At the same time, the things I do have have a purpose for me. I'm, I don't believe in extravagance at all. Um, even though I love great things, I love to eat. My father, one thing he did, he loved to eat well. And he loved to dress well. Those are two things. I mean, dress well, I mean, just this beautiful, you know, mohair, you know, the, you know, the beautiful, you know, just leather and suede shoes, you know. Through the, I, I, my father dressed so classic that that's something I, I remember wholeheartedly. And we always had the most amazing food in the house. We scallops every week we had. Everything from your, your best steaks to lobsters, the crabs, the scallops, to veal, the lamb. We had everything in our house every every day. He loved to eat well. So is that where that you was, got your love for the culinary arts as well as fashion? Well, yeah, absolutely. Um, both my grandmothers were phenomenal cooks. My grandmother on his side was a phenomenal baker. So I to this day, no one makes better cookies or ice cream or cakes to my grandmother on his side. Now, my grandmother on my mother's side, my mother's side of the family, they was just amazing academics. And they own a lot of property in Texas. Um, they weren't built rich like my dad, but they own a lot of property. Um, so, but they were just ridiculous academics. So even the movie, The, the Great Debater, that was based on my, uh, my grandfather, my mother's father. Uh, my, my grandfather, my mother's father, had a, a, lot, a lot of books that actors on the kids studying in college now, he had a uh, use of aliens. But my grandfather was an amazing, amazing scholar. Um, so, but his wife uh, also was an amazing scholar. She was the best cook I've ever experienced in my life. And I love great food. I've been to some of the best restaurants around the world. But my grandmother, on my mother's side, I don't know anybody can beat her cooking. No one. So I kind of learned from her. <laughs> now, out of curiosity, you've done so many things and started so many different kinds of things. I'm curious as to why uh, a, a catering was not amongst those things, given your love. Well, I do, I do a lot of cooking for friends and family, so it looks like it's catering, but it's not. Um, my grandmother, she was you know, I've been telling Nami Arigato for 49 years. I was 15, 17 years old. Um, so a lot of the activities we do, I'm in charge of them as far as the food is Um, We've done over 100 films, like I told you. So a lot of them Lifetime and USA, Bravo, that kind of thing. We've done a lot of international films. 
at, at crucial moments where everybody couldn't stand, <laughs> I really mean couldn't stand the caterer, I would kind of last two or three days, maybe come in and take over. Um, but it's not something I like to do like that because I don't like being rushed when I'm cooking. Hmm. Yeah, I, I guess that's a factor too, yeah. Exactly, it's a question of love and vibe and effort. So when you're under that kind of pressure, sometimes the things don't come out the way you want them to. So I've done it under pressure a couple of times, but I am going to open a restaurant, but it won't be for profit. It'll strictly be because I want people to be able to have great food and it'll be a tax write-off for me in that way. Well, us being Facebook friends, I certainly appreciate the pictures of your posts of the uh, uh, food that you cook. Oh, so that's my daughter as well. My daughter is a phenomenal um, chef herself. Uh, her first love is music. Of course, she's an engineer, recording and sound. Um, and she's a great, great, great A&R person. She does very well doing that. Hmm. But her true hobby, I would say, is cooking and, and finding food and she does things like octopus tacos and Peruvian chicken and you know chickpea salads in the morning. My daughter, my, my daughter's that person, you know, uh, you know, flatbread pizzas that are, that are vegetarian in the morning. That's what she does. Huh. So, are you second or third generation entertainment business? I know your father, but does it go back further than that uh, of people that that had careers in the entertainment business? No, it's it, we're second generation. My father's yeah, my father's side of the family. Um, they had a lot of money, but also they were exquisite businessmen. Um, so they owned a lot of property here and in, in Europe, and so it was a whole different kind of thing. They were doctors, um, business and attorneys, that kind of thing. Um, because scholastics was something that was really impressed upon you too growing up. I mean, you're. My uncle was Ralph Ellison, the one who wrote the Invisible Man. You know, my uncle, my father's brother. Um, so they were they were they were creative and they were business people, but they had money, so they were able to explore the things that that they really loved doing. Yeah, it's just kind of interesting that uh, it took Julia to show a non-stereotypical black family when. Way before then, there were, you know, I just kind of wonder why it took so long <laughs> when there are, were so we many. Know, we know why, and that's a whole other subject. But even now, things we know that were hidden, um, that our contribution to society and the stifling of our more expansive contribution, even now, um, makes me really, really sad. But at the same time, it's inspired me now to, and my sister, especially my sister and I are like, you know, two peas in a pod. You know, we're the best of friends and we're business partners. And we have a couple of things we're doing right now that really are going to open up and expand our younger generation's investment in the world they live in. And they're, I should say, being recognized for their investment. But speaking of your sister, Madeline, uh, whom I, I met both of you on the set of A Color Purple, and you were kind enough to introduce me to Quincy Jones, which if I had been smarter, I would have probably tried to develop that relationship a little more from your gracious introduction. But uh, uh, anyway, yeah, n- no crying over spilt milk. Uh, say that again. 
Mallon was executive vice president for Quincy Jones. Well, well, yeah, that's what. So I, I kind of got that wrong because I was thinking that you and and Madeline were the assistants to Quincy Jones, but I think that you guys had other roles than that. Yeah, but, we did. We came, I just got to working for Barry Gordy at that time. Uh, and that's a beautiful story, but I had to. I'll tell you more in a minute. We talk more. Um, but Madeline at that time was executive assistant. Um, but she was also the music supervisor for the film, but she, out of her graciousness, gave it to Tom Baylor, who wrote, as you know, uh, She's Out of My Life for Michael Jackson. Mm-hmm. Um, but we both were, you know, we were in the, we were in the movie, you know, with the Duke joint scene, but Madeline obviously was assistant to Quincy, and she put the whole thing together, actually. Um, but I was there, and then we came back, and everything came back together. I started working with Quincy and Tom Baylor and Hermione Dello with, uh, at Cinema Score, Quincy's company. Um, scoring company for different films. But Madeline, at that point, then she got promoted to executive vice president. And uh, this is a little bit off the subject, but my other question is, is it true what they say about twins? Now, I believe you have five siblings? Well, yes. Altogether, six of them. I have five. Madeline's one of them. So after Madeline's four, it's four of them. And Madeline is your twin. So yes. now, is there this special connection between twins? Like, I noticed when you went blonde, oh. she went blonde. I don't know if you talked about it or if just, like, cosmically. But is there some special yes. connection between you and your twin? The special connection we have is what we created. Uh, we are fraternal twins. We're not identical. We're fraternal twins, not identical. Um, which means, as you know, two eggs at the same time being fertilized, not one egg split. So we're two different people who happen to look a lot, a lot, a lot alike, which is kind of unusual because mostly my mother's a twin hmm. and we've been able to create a bond just based on the fact that we really love and admire each other and we have different skill sets. Hmm. Uh, my mother's a twin, like I was uh, saying before I got <laughs> interrupted here. Uh, her, her twin is a, bro- is, is a, is a man. Hmm. Uh, my favorite uncle, Uncle Bill. Um, and my mother was 5'11". Now, of course, she's older now. She's 92, but of course, she shrunk a little bit. And her twin brother, 6'4", 6'5". They were best friends, best friends. Um, and Matt and I are twins, obviously, as well. We're fraternal twins. These happen to look a lot alike. We're mm-hmm. fraternal twins. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Just must be pretty cool having someone... I mean, like I said, it seems like you come from a very close family, but to have that added extra person that you know has your back through thick and thin must be kind of comforting. Yes. What kind of, uh, uh, were you a popular kid growing up? What kind of, what kind of uh, kid were you uh, amongst your peers? We were popular because we were twins. Hmm. And, and we were popular because my father was very, uh, he was a local celebrity. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were popular because we were smart. But other than that, we were just regular kids. Yeah. Uh, we had great friends growing up. We were always we always were great dancers. We were always involved in the arts. So we always we took everything from harp to violin to to guitar to flute to piccolo to drums, piano, you name it, we took everything. Um so we were always involved in dance, um, ballet, modern dance. We were, you know, art, we were involved in everything. So you've kind of so, created a career for yourselves behind the scenes. Was there any point when you actually wanted a career in front of the scenes? That's something I never wanted. Hmm. Why? Um, I asked a few times, you know, to do certain things. I could even sing a little bit. So I was asking to maybe. Well, you're a, a music major as well, correct? 
Like you actually majored in music, which is not a small well, accomplishment. So I actually went to UCLA to um, for um, music theory after I finished, you know, a, a BA and a, and a, and a AA. Mm-hmm. Um, I got a, obviously business administration and a journalism at uh, FITM, business administration at uh, you know Cal State Los Angeles and um, and journalism there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was already involved with them. Um, as you know, and then I working in the industry, but I grew up in the industry. So I knew more about the industry than the average fair. Mm-hmm. Um, so at that point, I want being in publishing. I wanted, and of course, I had already had quite a bit of experience in music. I wanted to understand music theory more hmm. because we had to with our songwriters and producers, and I wanted to make sense. And I wanted, out of respect for their talent, be able to have a you know a a tete a tete sort of conversation, you know, mm-hmm. that was conversation. Hmm. So I went back to that. Who were some of your most influential teachers? Did you have any mentors uh, when you were growing up? In the industry was Brenda Andrews um, in publishing. Uh, she was the first hierarchical, yes, diva of all. Um, and to work with her and for her was phenomenal. I met so many people through her. And she's still, you know, somebody I cherish. I mean, talk quite often. Um, other mentors, my Uncle Bill, my, my mother's brother, uh, just because his heart. Uh, he got me really involved um, with youth authority, like he said, and being involved with uh, young men and young women who are marginalized in society. And I was able to really connect with them and have the most amazing experiences for them. Uh, I mean, hardcore, hardcore kids. And what I learned from them is something that's priceless. Hmm. You touch their heart, the wisdom that comes from that kind of hard life, when they transform that into compassion, you can learn so much from children like that. Hmm. So much. So I was able, when I worked with those kids and they had to matriculate them back into society, they taught me a lot more than I taught them. It was a joy working with them. Hmm. Uh, were any of your other siblings uh, involved in careers in the entertainment business other than than Maddie? My sister, uh, my, yeah, I take it back. My my youngest brother, uh, he's been in the entertainment industry since eighteen years old. He was um, a, a production assistant for In Living Color. Um, and from that point on, he's been on countless films and television programs and cable programs. He's been a um, um, a. a uh, set decoration um, and and designing of sets, gaffer, all that. Um, he's union. He's been union for the last thirty years. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's 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 been in the industry that way. Um, so yes, he's he's works on the best of films. He's he's quite good at it. Now my other brothers are, are very. My sister, she's um has a master's in education. She's in Texas. And she loves it. Um, my other brother um, has three different degrees, and he's um, he's an he's, he's an attorney. Um, and my other brother just retired, but he was uh, the president of international um, a merchandising company for the last thirty, forty, thirty-five years, I think it was. So, yeah. Hmm. Um. Your father was a ghostwriter for Star Trek, Mission Impossible, I Spy, First Black, KCET, PBS yes. hosts, 
yeah. for the Mexico Olympics as an international broadcast journalist, program director for KGFJ Radio. First African-American to attend the Oklahoma University School of Communications. Yeah. How did your father earn that title Big Gem or get that title of Big Gem? Who, who gave that to how had that come about? Well, he wasn't a big guy. He was really funny. Oh, um, he was a big, he wasn't a big guy, you said? Oh, no, he's 5'11 and slim. Hmm. He got Big Jim because of, because of his personality. He, he, was, he was imposing. He was so brilliant. And I, I'm not saying it because he's my dad. He well, was so he, he he was, and from everything I can see, he was. I'm just kind of curious as to how, what got he him. He got Big Jim because his personality was amazing. Huh, um, huh. And he had a huge heart. It's he really, brought the community mm-hmm. together um, mm-hmm. so much um, in California. Um, but that's a long story. I also want to talk a little bit about my mother because my mother, he picked my mother. Did your mother work mother, too, or was she, uh, uh, which is a job in itself, definitely staying at home and raising kids? No, she was, she was a teacher. She so was, before that, she was, she was a top, graduated top of her class of University of Nebraska. Hmm. Um, well, that's another question too, because it seems like you, your family is very scholastically oriented. How did, what made Big Jim pursue this path of entertainment? He wanted to be more involved. It was, it was broadcasting. It wasn't so much entertainment. He got, he got pulled and lulled into entertainment more. Hmm. But also, he balanced activism with him being involved in entertainment and broadcasting. Um, so, even though you couldn't see it, you know, he was the one very involved also with um, Martin Luther King Jr. and everything he did. Mm-hmm. Um, Sidney Poitier, Harry Belafonte. I used to up my house all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, he was very involved. My mother was that anchor. Hmm. Um, but she blew him away. My mother's smart as a whip. Uh, and when he was when he was the, you know, the celebrity DJ and disc jockey and... Dallas, Texas. It was funny because he made it a, a huge, um, let's just say, on, honorarium of histor- historic black people in Texas. And my father was on the front page. Hmm. But my mother, it's when my father came there to do it. My mother, my mother was living there, and she was on the first black executive at Neiman Marcus. Hmm. Um, it was interesting because my mother, because she's five eleven, stallion, gorgeous woman. Mm-hmm. And she's brown skin, and my father's light. Um, and it was funny because obviously it comes from a place where my father's like, I, you know, I, I, this is maybe you, you want to, they want to edit this. He's like, I'm tired of red bones. I want to meet somebody of color, mm-hmm. really, you know, a rich brown skin, a rich colored brown skin woman. Mm-hmm. And so when he came, the, the, he was a celebrity in Dallas, and he was asking everybody around there. He goes, D, you know, I'd like to meet some people here. I'd like to meet you know, maybe a nice young lady because back then is how they talked. Mm-hmm. Is there anybody here I should meet? And everybody said, you've got to meet Lillian Rogers, which hmm. is my mother, her maiden name. She is the cream of the crop in the city. Hmm. In Miss- Mississippi, you said? Was like, huh? You said Mississippi? No, Texas. 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 They said my mother was the cream of the crop in the city. Mm-hmm. And so my father was like, well, how do I meet her? And they said, well, we have to, we have to go through her parents because her father doesn't play, you know. Mm-hmm. And she has three older brothers and all my uncles was six four, six five, and very, very intellectually, as I should say, and athletically, you know, 
developed, I should put it that way. Mm -hmm. um, and it was funny because my father was a little bit intimidated because I would like to meet her. And all he kept hearing about was about my mother and, and what a gracious and amazing woman she was. Mm -hmm. And she was single. So my father went out of his way to try to find her and meet her. Hmm. So when he finally had a chance to meet her, he came to the house with one of his friends and her twin brother, you know, my uncle Bill and her two other brothers and her family, mother and fa her mother and father were there and goes, who are you? Because they knew who he was. But they, he, he, my father went through the whole process of getting to know them before he met my mother. Mm -hmm. And that they started dating and they got married a year later. And that's how it was done in those days. Absolutely. <laughs> and then I got married actually a little less than a year later. Mm -hmm. um, and then... Of course, they got married, and then we were born. We were the first born twins. Mm -hmm. So that was it. Hmm. Uh, what was the 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 road that 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 led your father to becoming such an influential personality in the radio industry? He had no fear. And after meeting with Martin Luther King Jr., that's when he decided to go into broadcasting and activism versus a medical career because. A lot of his family was very involved in the medical industry and in one form or another. Like even his father had the first black, only black owned business in Oklahoma City, hmm. Oklahoma. Randolph Drug, the only black business for years. And they're famous for it. His uncle had the first black hospital in Oklahoma City. So it was a lot of that in our family. My father did not want to be. And they didn't. After he met with our, Sorry, go ahead. They didn't burn any of those places down then. Oh, no. And my father wanted to be more exposed to making a difference. And he want, after that point, he got involved in broadcasting. Once he was the, in charge of the debate club at Oklahoma City University, he just said, Oklahoma, he just said, you know what? This is what I can do well. And of course, his hobbies, he had a yacht. My father had a yacht, he, he, you know, he had a plane, all that. We never got on either one of them. I said, okay, what you say, Dad? I'm not getting on your plane or your yacht, <laughs> do you? Um, but he truly enjoyed bringing people together. That's something he was profoundly, profoundly excellent at. And it, him, he never made anything about color. He was the first black member of the Wilshire Country Club, you know, the golf club right off, you know, about Rossmore and Third and Beverly. And he just was that guy. He just, um, he was, you know, he just was a first at everything. And, and not because he was trying to be a first. He just didn't let anything get in the way of who he wanted to be. Nothing. Hmm. So he just did. And would you say that was your father's secret to success? Yes, and also my mother's. My mother is my mother's story is not as broad, you know, and um, I should say is uh, recorded, but she was the one that kept everybody anchored, and she really helped my dad develop more and more compassion. Hmm. He had the drive for it, but because he was, he was raised so rich, he had nannies, he had servants, you know what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. He just did. So my mother, even though they were they were they were raised well, you know, they had money, they weren't raised like that. My mother had so much compassion. Everybody loved my mom. Everyone. So it kept my dad so 
focus on the heart of everything versus the pretentiousness of things mm-hmm. or the ego of things. Hmm. So Give- yes, he did a lot of great things. But I'm gonna tell you, even when we went, they went down to do the um, 68 Olympics. And of course, obviously with the two, you know, black, you know, um, I, I'm, I'm a terrible with names. The two guys, obviously, you know, who put up the black power signs. They were, you know, um, uh, shit of their uh, their medals. My mother and father had breakfast with them that very next morning after they won those those uh, races. Mm-hmm. And both of the guys were sitting there talking to my mother. And my father was just sitting there looking at him. My father was obviously, you know, doing this job there. He was a broadcaster, you know, journalist there. But they sat and talked to my mother and opened their heart up to my mother. And what my mother told them, to this day, blows me away. I even put it on my Facebook page. What she told them blew me away. Hmm. She said, don't let this get the best of you. She goes, what you did is going to far surpass your athletic acumen. You're going down in history is standing up for something so more important. And they had a lot more effect. She had a lot more effect on them than my father ever could. Hmm. Hmm. So my mother changed. They, she was teacher of the year nationally two years in a row. I can go on. My mother's pretty amazing. So my father looked up too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know anyone um, that could have kept my father focused Hmm. more than my mother hmm. Hmm. And, and he i was the only person he was afraid of hmm. not afraid of of, of of not loving her but he was afraid of ever disappointing her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. my mother is a very strong student in the individual amazing hmm. given your background have you ever uh flirted with the idea of of creating a, a biopic pick of both your parents about both your we, parents? We already have a show. We're doing a biopic of both of them. Yeah. Okay. All right. Cool. Well, that's good to hear. How many do you do? <laughs> <laughs> all right. Fantastic. I, I, I would love to see that. Uh, um, oh, you will. And you'll probably be in it. Yeah. You, 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 don't worry. Don't worry. Um, your, your father once said that there are only two kinds of radio, good and bad. So what have you learned are the elements of good radio? I don't listen to radio much now because radio is not what it used to be. Uh, so what's taking the place of radio? Being involved in the business of radio mm-hmm. and entertainment, people being involved in entertainment from, you know, Larry McCormick, you know, Frankie, you know, Frankie Crocker. My father hired all those people. He hired Frankie Crocker. He hired Frankie Rock. Mm-hmm. He hired so many people. Mm-hmm. Uh, Walt Baby Love, you know, to um, Cliff. I can go all these guys that I, from way back in the day mm-hmm. who still worship my dad. Mm-hmm. And of course, we lost, we lost Cliff Winston, you know, quite a few, a few years ago. But what my father learned about radio back in the day was it was the business of educating the masses. Hmm. So you had to stay educated. People went to work in, my father went to work every day in, everyone was in suits and ties. Um, they spoke the Queen's English. They had degrees. It wasn't something you could show up and yo man, what's up? And that was not radio back in the day. You had to be an educated individual to be in radio or broadcast. Hmm. It was an honor to be in broadcast. You had to you had to enunciate. We would we would answer the phone when people call our house. We we got the phone. Hello, Randolph residents. To whom am I speaking? Mm-hmm. I was four and five years old answering a phone like that. <laughs> huh. uh, how do you think your father would have dealt with today's 
partisan kind of television, whether it's CNN or Fox News or MSNBC, it's like everyone is partisan. How would your father deal with today's climate when it seems like you pretty much have to be partisan and you can't just kind of re- report the facts and let people make up you their never own have mind? To be partisan. Huh? You never have to be anything you are. You never have to look. You never have to be partisan. You never have to be anything but who you are. And well, that's something I know um, just from how I live my life and how he lived his life, my mother. Yeah. Well, ideally, um, I think we had. Huh? Ideally, yes. But it seems like the reality is that m- most mainstream outlets seem to be partisan. Well, that's how they feel they need to stay. Can I put it? Not engaged but relevant and which it seems they're not doing a good job of because their audiences are decreasing. I think the largesse, especially of the younger generation, 40 and and, and younger Mm -hmm. largesse, not all of them, obviously. Um, But I think a good 75% of them are, are more engaged and looking for something that has more of an homogenous, um, I should say, presentation of facts and truth. Because facts change all the time. In fact, truth changes. Mm-hmm. Truth, everybody's truth is not, mm-hmm. you know, you know, I should say, you know, o- you know overarching. Mm-hmm. You know, we mm-hmm. all have a way of how we see things, and that's our truth, mm-hmm. period. Mm-hmm. I believe my father and how Matt and I even operate now, the kind of business, we have entertainment business right now. We're very busy right now, in fact. Mm-hmm. You see my phone going off like crazy. Um, what is the one factor that everybody can unite behind? Mm-hmm. That's how my father would see things. Mm-hmm. What is the one core belief or not item, but intrinsic value of something that we all want to protect or be, be part of? And I think that's what my father, I know is my father was about. That's why I think he was so loved and respected because he was that guy he never looked at anybody as color i never forget because obviously living in hancock park you know all our friends most of our friends were jewish and one of our best friends her name was me uh, i shouldn't say name but anyway she really loved us and and what happened was what happened was um her father and her mother both were direct exiles from Auschwitz hmm. and they had, you know, the numbers on their, you know, their forearms, everything. Mm-hmm. And they weren't really interested in their daughter having, you know, two black girls as their best friends. And at that time I didn't know what that looked like. I didn't know anything about prejudice. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. All my friends have been Jewish for so many years or Asian or mixed, whatever. My father knowing how much he meant to us, uh, said, you know, she looked right down the street from us and he goes, okay, you know what, I'm going to walk you guys down there and we'll see, you know, I'm going to meet their parents and see what happens. And so he walked down there and the father was out there watering his yard and he spoke very broken English because again, he was straight from, you know, Auschwitz and that part of Europe. And my father started speaking fluent Hebrew and Yiddish to him. Hmm. And he turned around and the look on her father's face 
he just crumbled. Hmm. And my father walked him. They hugged maybe five minutes. I'm hmm. not kidding. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a bromance immediately. Mm-hmm. And from that moment on, we could do anything anytime around their house. My father cared like that. Mm-hmm. He never made it about, he wasn't upset that they, their father was you know, possibly racist or prejudiced. Because obviously, you know, back in those days, they didn't know. My father didn't know what they were telling the people in Europe about black people in America, mm-hmm, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but he went down there and it didn't matter. And at that moment, he just crushed whatever bias was in his heart at that point. Hmm. And it happened to dissipate right there on the spot. It's really interesting how if you can just find one little piece of common ground, how that can change things, turn yeah. things around. Uh, yeah. Out of curiosity, did your mother ever remarry? Once, yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And um, it didn't work out very well, but um, he was a good guy. And I have to admit that we have some great people we're still in contact with. They're part of his family. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he passed away. Uh, but she did remarry again. And um, it, it, just didn't, it just didn't last. She did remarry again. Yeah, yeah. Well, you yeah. know, it's... it's wonderful of a gentleman as the other person was your father does seem pretty irreplaceable um maverick's flat can you talk to us a bit about maverick's flat its significance its owner john daniels he was like a godfather to us he was a business partner with my dad for a while in the 60s and um we went down there in the 60s a couple times with him just just during the day when they didn't do doing work my father again he was the my father was the ambassador for LA uh, and again activist you know so he was truly embraced by everybody entertainment wise he was well, he was the one person that brought everybody together in the community black white Asian whatever he brought everybody together that was my dad hmm. and um, so a lot of stuff that John Daniels was doing John was very evolved when it came to entertainment at that time he did a lot of stuff actually in Europe so my father helped him with a few things and he remembered us so when we went back there, when we were now 17 years old, graduated from um, from high school, um, we were going down there for college night on Thursdays. And John Daniels came out, and he, and he goes, are you Big Jim Randolph's kids? And we said, yeah. He goes, come in. He goes, you guys never have to wait in line. You never have to pay nothing. He goes, just come on in. So we had lifetime membership, and every time he came in, you know, he goes, he'd, he'd come down and check on us and give us a big hug. And my mother would call down and go, you know, John, are the girls there? He goes, yeah, they're fine. Lillian, don't worry. I'm watching them. One of the so few, he's off. One of the few places that, that you're, well, one of the few after hours clubs that your dad would let you guys go to. My dad wasn't alive. It was my mother. Oh, it was your mother. Okay. So that's. Yes, my, 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 dad, my, my dad died when I was 14. Right, right, right. Yeah. I, so I, I just turned 14 when he passed away. We were, we were going to high school. And, um. But my mother was still close to John Daniel. So mm-hmm. he was like, he was, he was an uncle to us. Mm-hmm. So we would go down there and he would just take care of us. So that's what happened. And a lot of prominent people, politicians, doctors, lawyers. Uh, well, initially, Maverick Flat was a place, everybody from Marlon Brando, you know, to, um, oh, I spaced it. I'm, I'm, I'm so bad with names. I'm getting older. Hey, <laughs> um, one was married to... Um, not made a fair or whatsoever. Anyway, it's not important. Um, but it was actually a white club. Hmm. Um, all your top white that each but all of them were down there at Matt's flat. Because uh, my father was in the, in the entertainment industry at that point. You know, he, he helped 
a lot of the collaborations as far as people coming together at that point. Um, so, and then at that point, everybody from Hiroshima to Rufus to Richard Pryor to LTD, you can go on an earth when a fire, everyone was down there mm-hmm. performing. Next time you name everyone, everyone was there. It was almost like a breeding ground and for talent. And more importantly, it was the first initial dry run for Soul Train. And it was the first place they did the Pasadena Walk, which and then after that became the Hustle. And the Hustle became everything from the electric slides, you name it, you know it. Hmm. Every every type of walking, side sweeping dance came right from Maverick Black. You know? But I had to give John Daniels credit. He kept it a clean, no alcohol, no BS place. Hmm. Mm-hmm. He made sure... And those Arizona kids came in. They used to call it the White House because you could not get in hmm. unless you presented yourself in a way where you were worthy of being in, in his establishment. Mm-hmm. Even for college nights or Fridays and Saturday nights, if you weren't of some, well, someone he wanted in his place to represent the kind of energy he wanted in Maverick's flat, you were not allowed in. You were not allowed in his place. There was no riffraff in Maverick's flat. Hmm. Um, and I think he, I kind of lost you when we started to talk about it, but you have chosen a career behind the scenes. What was the moment when you definitely knew that you wanted to make your career in the entertainment business behind the scenes? And what's the reason you didn't want to be in front of the scenes as a performer? Mostly because, I'm really being honest, I didn't feel cute enough, number one. Um and even though it sounds silly, I always felt I had marginal talents in certain areas, but I was always really good at putting people together and writing. Hmm. Um, I had a really great you know, sense of style, and I had great ears when it came to music. So those are the things that I wanted to focus on. I never wanted to be one of those kind of you know, people who made it about Anything I do, what I look like, what I drove, um, who I knew. I wanted to make it about just how I could contribute something that would have lasting value. Mm-hmm. Genuinely. So I went to school and I came, when I came out, they wanted to hire me at Women's Wear Daily in New York. And I wasn't going back to New York at, you know, at 21, 22 years old by myself. I just wasn't going to do it. And I never forget because my sister already worked today in them records. Um, I knew all the guys and everybody there. So one day I was home and the phone kept ringing and I finally picked it up and it was like one of the guys from A&M and the black music uh, marketing department. Uh, he was a director. And he goes, hey, Eileen, you know, Jerry Johnson. He goes, hey, Eileen, I, I, I know Malin's not home, but do you know anyone who may want to work here? You know, I need an assistant in the marketing department, black music marketing department, and, I, and in retail and everything. He goes, I, I'm, I'm swamped. My, my, my girl who was working with me, she's um, moving back to Atlanta. And I shocked him. I said, I'll take it. And he said, what? I said, Jerry, I'll take it. He goes, you got to be kidding me. I said, no. He goes, I, I just finished school. He goes, why aren't you going back to New York to be a writer? I said, well, I can help you write and market. I have a marketing degree. You know? So he goes, you do? I said, yeah, you, you know I do. He goes, okay, well, come in for the interview. And I, I got the job. Hmm. So that's how it started. Did- and because I already knew music, it was very easy. And the thing was so weird. I knew I was supposed to be there when I got there. And the first week I was there, you know, BRE magazine was the magazine back in the day, you know, for the industry. 
uh, black black radio exclusive. And actually, Sydney just passed away, um, and it makes me kind of sad. But um, the first week I was there, the first full page article was about my dad. Hmm. So I opened the magazine, and boom, my father's big old face and article was right there. It's kind of be kind of got to be a double edged kind of sword too, because it I'm sure it brings back a lot of memories that kind of. No, I have great memories of my dad. Well, I, I I know, but I mean, missing him so much because you're reminded. Uh, well, I'm always reminded of him. Um, and I mean that genuinely. I'm not trying to be coy when I say that. Uh, it made me proud what it made me. It, it didn't hurt. It made, me, made my heart swell in a really good way. Yeah. I just I, I imagine it's got to be quite difficult and traumatic to lose your father at, at a relatively young age like that. I mean, those are some pretty important years. Unbelievably traumatic. Yeah. Unbelievable. The way he died, you know, mm-hmm. was, was, was horrible. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, but he died right in the house that night, you know, and it was horrible. Mm. Um, but um, he had also one of the most auspicious lives of anybody I know that's black. Hmm. My father had a tremendously purposeful life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. Did you did everything kind of fall in place, kind of like the story you just described, or did you have obstacles to overcome in your journey uh, of being a, a a music business professional? Well, it's not just music. We got involved with film, television. Um, the way I got involved in music is comes from a place of genuine respect and a real intense desire to learn more and contribute from an ancillary um, position to people who had inherent amazing natural talent, you know? Um, I never wanted to be that person who made about what I think. I always wanted to be about thinking about what touched me and if I could share that with someone and help them develop their career, then I knew I was doing something right. Uh, so, and because I grew up and really grew up in this industry, one of the best of the best from Matt Keith Cole to here, Belafonte to everybody from Motown, you know, to the East Memphis catalog down in Memphis and Nashville, uh, to all the rock and roll, the Beatles. I mean, we grew up Rolling Stones, grew up with all of them. I, we had, a, my sister and I have a, a, just an immense palette for music. I naturally have ears. It wasn't something I had to try to, you know, but I like this and I don't care if you like that. I naturally have a very broad ear. Um, and also because we played instruments. I have a really, again, just a real natural respect for the evolution of production and arranging music, hmm. vocally and instrumentally. Mm-hmm. So that, that came with the package. Hmm. What? And because I can write and I love to read, you know, we had, I was reading newspapers at two years old. Mm-hmm. So I always read volumes and volumes of, of anything. So I love to put stories together behind um, music and the people we were working with as far as bios and marketing uh, materials and things of that nature. Well, thank goodness we have people like you because it seems uh, a lot of people need to be told what to like and what is good. <laughs> Um, what makes you continue 
at, at a point in your life where a lot of people are, I don't want to use the word retired, but just kind of doing whatever they okay. want to As do. As you see now, I'm a very youthful 66, very youthful. You but know? what makes you keep going? I mean, you don't have to work, I'm assuming. Uh, you're doing it because you want to, but you're saying that you're as busy now as any time in your life. What makes you want to put in those hours towards this? It, because I want to see this. Well, I do. The, the work I do is paced well. It may not look like it, but it's paced. I'm not going to do anything to hurt myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and more importantly... Matt, my sister, we do want to see this industry get back to a place where it respects talent, not the beam that's behind it. It has really been usurped by big business for the wrong reasons. Mm-hmm. And music is not what it used to be. It's all, you know, conveyor belt, you know, cookie cutter. How can we make money from it? And, and the true talent from it and the, and the way it touches your heart it's been gone for at least two decades as far as I'm concerned. So we're working with artists right now and even film and television, things we've written. We have several scripts we're working on. We have um, even things, a lot of things we're doing with tech right now. I can't, I can't actually um, disclose, but we're very involved with some international things right now that are going to make a resurgence of things that matter when it comes to the arts. How do you keep up with the technology and how it can help your business? We work with people that are the best at what they do. And I genuinely can say that confidently. Hmm. They are actually the creators of things. They're at the genesis and constantly creating things and have the respect worldwide of people who are doing the same thing but for the right reason. By right, I mean things that are going to truly benefit the masses, not just make money for a, a, a select few. And where do you find these people or, or where do they find you? I believe you attract where you're at. Hmm. And so I keep my energy up. I keep my focus based on how I can possibly always every day, that's why I'm a Buddhist, keep myself Mm-hmm. constantly learning, humble, appreciative, and seeking to be better and always want to learn something more. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us something about your relationship with Clarence Avant? I don't want to get too much detail right now with that. Um, we can skip that. How about, uh, you You might have mentioned her. because I, I, kind of... I will say this. Phenomenal man. Um, he helped me tremendously. Um, I can't say enough beautiful things about him but some of it's kind of private mm-hmm. but i will say this phenomenal 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 man and did you had you mentioned brenda andrews king as one of your mentors i know you mentioned some but you cut and out brenda, on some brenda of it of course brenda andrews king but i call her brenda andrews yeah uh, okay uh and uh randolph partners uh, can you tell us something about what what you all are involved in what we are involved in what you are um, involved in yes I can't get, we, that part of Randolph Partners is our financial um, business that we do. And that's highly, highly confidential. But financial partners, 
Uh, I mean, the, the Randolph Partners was part of us. And we were working with the World Bank and Central Bank. And I, I really have to drop it like that. It's very highly confidential. Yeah, no worries. We were directors with them, yeah. Uh, can you tell us anything about Higher Ground 44? Yes, that is our record company. Uh, we have uh, right now a country artist um, named Sean Christopher, who's amazing. And we I, I listen to his tracks, September. and I'm not even a particularly a country fan. And I have to admit, a lot of that is off my own... Uh, what do you say, bias or prejudice? Because uh, yeah. every time I hear the word country music, I think of the Confederate flag. But uh, I really <laughs> liked, uh, really enjoyed listening to this this gentleman's album. Uh, uh, I mean, I oh, think good. it branches out and right now we further have, than we country. Have to, uh, yeah. I'm so sorry. Yeah. There's an echo here. We have him producing a couple of the people right now. Who come. He does R&B. He does, but he does classics. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm talking about Frank Sinatra and, you know, um, Paul Anka and Dean Martin, you would think you're listening to Michael Buble. He does all of that. He does metal rock. He does mm-hmm. rock and roll. Hmm. But his heart is country because he, he was he was raised in Weatherford, Texas. So yeah. he is a true country artist. He calls it soul country. Well, um, We have him. Mm-hmm. And we're working with a couple of artists right now, which I can't name yet because we're still in the process of getting those things, those contracts yeah. um, finalized. But... Uh, we're only picking a handful of projects that we actually know we can sink our teeth into and we will go the mile with. I'm not, I have no interest in just being part of it. We have our record covers for the sake of it. Everything has to be something I will go the mile for. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems like uh, black, the black, the African-American influence on country music is a lot more than a lot of people would realize. I know I was interviewing another guest and they're about to produce like this, uh, shoot, I wish I were remembering the exact thing, but it's basically a country music awards all geared around African-Americans. Like there's a lot of, a lot more country that. and Western yeah. artists that are African-American than one would have ever imagined. Yeah, I know that. I'm not, and I'll, I'll keep, I'll keep most of my opinions to myself, but to me, I love country music. I, I personally do. Mm-hmm. My sister doesn't. She loves Sean Christopher. To me, every genre of music needs to stay pure. Mm-hmm. And by pure, I don't mean it doesn't need to evolve to, you know, to reflect, you know, obviously, you know, the difference, you know, the new, you know, technology and the audiences and all that and their palette. But I think the core heart of it needs to be there. And a lot of the other country, I'm not feeling. That's just me. And I, please, I'm not going to mention any names or anything because I'm proud of everyone who's making a living and what they love mm-hmm. if they're doing that. Mm-hmm. But I see a couple of country things I've seen lately. I'm like, really, this is not country. Okay, what you want to say is not country. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because you're wearing a hat and you have a twang in your voice. That's not country. <laughs> that doesn't That's not cut country it. music. Yeah. Cut it out. Because I've been down. I, I used to be in Nashville all the time in Memphis back in the, in the 80s and 90s, mm-hmm. uh, working with country artists. I know a country, and it is a true art form. And it needs to be respected. That's why I can't stand half of this hip-hop music most of the music out right now I have a problem with because it's, it's most of them not making music because it's truly paying homage to the art form. It's just a way for them to make some money or be mm-hmm. part of something that they're with a real diluted investment of spirit. I just don't, I just don't like it. Hmm. Uh, I'll, I'll leave it like that. Don't call me Corey Baker. Call me Marco Posh. Cause I'm not Julia's son, not anymore Don't call me Cory Baker, call me Marco Posh 
Cause I'm not Julia's son like I was before.